1: 657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com.
2: moving iron
1: hello man. welcome to moving iron podcast this is moving iron podcast this is brought to you by ag direct and i have greg roberg on here and greg how you doing man i am good
3: casey how are you
1: i can't good complain see you, any yeah we got some rain and things are things are you know perking our heads up a little bit here pretty dry and now we got about six inches of rain over the last week and i we have some good uh good opportunity to grow a good crop here it looks like so how That's things uh, on the eastern side of nebraska
3: A little dry, not as dry as you were. We had some of that rain that came through, uh, you know, kind of, what, the the 12th, 13th of of May. It kind of went up into northeast Nebraska, and kind of southeast Nebraska. So it kind of split there by Lincoln. I live near Omaha, so we we maybe got to 10, 1500s, but could use some more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we are... uh... We got the six inches rain here, and I'm sure in about two weeks we'll be wanting some more rain. So it'll be, it'll be, uh, you know, you never, you never get enough.
3: Nature hasn't forgotten
1: about you. Well, she she sure did put us in a in the naughty corner someplace for a while there. So I guess I don't know, I don't know what we did, but we were in trouble for a while. But, but yeah, so well, a lot of stuff happening here, Greg. You take a look at what's going on. We got you know interest rates, obviously, are are a. Mm-hmm. Big, topic of conversation. So looking at uh, AgDirect's portfolio of products that they have out there right now, what, do, what are you using right now to work with your customers to help kind of ease some of this pain?
3: Well, you know, it's, it's what makes sense for the customer. You know, sure. are they uh, are they cash flow sensitive? Are they just trying to manage interest rate expense? So uh, what we're seeing a lot of the case is, I'd say 95% of what we're writing right now are, are true purchases or loans. Mm-hmm. Um, Four five percent is leases. We do have some really good lease specials. Just lease it, which is available for new and used. We knock a quarter off the interest rate. Uh, so some folks are taking advantage of that. We have some really good residuals on used combines, uh, as well as doing used sprayers, doing used planters. So right now, a lot of planters go in the field. If a guy wants to upgrade, or maybe his planter just came in, those are some things to look at. But there's a lot of cash in the market, yeah. and that's why we're seeing. A lot of purchases are still kind of that pride of ownership. Yeah, I can write a check for it. What's interesting to me, I've been in this business now 23 years. We're seeing a lot of big ticket purchases, like four or $500,000. Uh, guys are putting half down in cash. And, yeah. and they probably, have, I'm sure they have the cash, but they may also be trying to kind of lighten that interest rate and expense. So it'll be really interesting. We got another quarter from the Fed here in May. They're going to get it in June and July. Um, right now the opinion is from the experts that they may take a break yep. and that would be really good news for anybody that's in financing or, or need to borrow a little money because I do believe we'll we'll see some money. Our interest rates have come down a little bit. Some of our competitors have come down a little bit. I think we'd see a little bit more coming down on interest rates but uh took a pause. Yeah. Yep. So um, probably given it a read there's just a little bit of hope there, but eventually the Fed's going to say, you know, enough is enough. Let's just see if these actions are taken, uh, get the job done. There's been some good news with inflation coming out a little bit. Yeah. So uh, business is good. We had a really good March and April. Very grateful for that. Uh, May is still pretty good, but, um, you know, we're really heavy into grain farming, you know, across the country. That's kind of bread and butter. So guys are in the field and, and not buying as much.
1: Up. Yeah, definitely that time of the year where sales kind of slope just a little bit. But, but we're also seeing um so much of that uh, inventory that got delayed uh coming right. out, you know, whatever. You picked a year when it got delayed and it might be just showing up now two years later, who knows? But but uh, you know, working through all that, you're starting to see some of that stuff flow in. Greg, as you're working with your customers right now, what are some of the things that you're hearing talking about quite a bit? And what are some of the um I guess positive things you're hearing, and some of the negative things you're hearing?
3: Well, big positive is just the cash. A lot of cash in the market, record subsidies in 20, uh, 1920. Um, so just to kind of help, you know, the government, we had some of those spats with China and some government gave the farmers some money and some really good crops and some really good prices, uh, especially, you know, with the Ukraine War, that really got the markets to pop. Uh, so that's on the optimistic front. More a little bit on the cautious front is you know, we've seen declines in corn, especially, yeah. and, and where are we headed with that? Uh, corn really drives the market, particularly when it comes to buying equipment. I'm sure you see that on yeah. the sales side. We certainly see that on the finance side. So that's probably the big question mark I hear from farmers and dealers is, well, where's the price of corn going to end up, especially as we get to harvest? Yeah. So I don't know, my crystal ball is a little fuzzy in that area, but it's the ocean economists, most of them will say it's not going to drop significantly, but there's going to be some some downward pressure on corn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've kind of heard the same thing and similar responses to that same question about, you know, what's it going to look like and, you know, what's corn going to do? And I always say, if, if I knew what corn was going to do, we probably wouldn't be talking right <laughs> now. But, um, you know, you so. Feet in yeah. the sand or
3: feet up. Of- with the uh, corona in your hand somewhere nice and tropical.
1: Probably. On my private island someplace, you know, with my yacht parked off. The Be more
3: yacht. Island.
1: But, yeah, I, that's a, I
3: could I could visit a place like
1: that. Sure. Yeah, you, you could come down whenever you want. Yep. All right, Greg. last question here? Looking over uh the overall kind of uh from a technology perspective, as you're looking at what you're financing, how is technology playing into that and and how much of your um Financing, you see, linked directly to some kind of a technological upgrade, where that's upgrade kits on planners or um you know various componentry that you can see added on the machinery now.
3: Start to see more and more. Good answer for as far as
1: percent. It's
3: mm-hmm. uh, there's so you know when we get the application, you know, we don't only see all that technology. We're trying to make it really easy for dealers and customers, so they tell us here's here's what I'm buying and here's the purchase price and we rock and roll with that. Yep. Um, we, just, we trust the dealer, trust the customer. Uh, so I don't have a good answer for how much is on there. I'm sure there's a fair amount of technology. We do seeing more and more, particularly with toolbars. Mm. Guys are taking the 20-year-old toolbar and putting new technology on it. Um, yep. Then then we book that up. But that'd be a pretty small percentage. It'd still be in you know, the millions of dollars of financing yep. kind of stuff. So yep. um, I think we'll see more and more of that. Um, Particularly at planters because you can outfit a toolbar pretty quickly, yeah, or easily. But um, sure. um, still seeing a lot of combines, you know, start of rolling in tractors that's some bread and butter. Probably forty percent of what we do or more is, is tractors. Yep. Yeah, we had good sprayer season too, so feels like the supply chain starting to catch up just a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm starting um, to feel that too.
3: Yeah, That was by the Case IH plant in Grand Island not that long ago, and there was. Less planters there than there was at uh, the harvest days in September. Yeah. So that's a positive sodium.
1: Yep. Yeah, it feels like the uh supply chain is starting to uh catch up with uh, overall demand and things are starting to come through. Still got delays and those kind of things that are out there. That's that's we're not out of the woods there yet, but it's nothing like it was two years ago. So um it's for sure uh, moving in the right direction and and it's going to start that's what's going to drive some of these pricing changes that we see now. It's just simple supply and demand metrics that are that are driving this now and not necessarily the overarching just hey, I got a bunch of money or hey I, you know I need to go do this that or the other thing. it's it's truly you know economics are driving this now. so on um, from the supply and demand side for sure for sure. Well, Greg, hey, good conversation. thanks for being on the podcast. Folks want to reach out to AgDirect, get more information about what's happening. What's the best way to do that?
3: one is PCAGDirect.com. You can see our rates. You get see all of our specials right there. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Call us at 888 525 9805 or check us out on our mobile app. Agdirect mobile. Uh, get all of over rates there, have those lease specials I talked about. If you want to see what those residuals are, I think our combine residuals are really good, especially on these combine. So if you think about having combine or doing something like that here with the summer, check that out. You got payment calculator so it's ag direct mobile it's free and uh check us out so website give us a call or on the mobile we're there to help
1: right um well greg I appreciate you being on the podcast and thanks for the partnership with Ag Direct
3: yeah we appreciate it Casey you have a great week
1: you too man thanks thanks hello and welcome to moving iron podcast this is the moving iron podcast this is brought to you by agdirect and I've got somebody different than Tanner Mke on here with me I got Ken Zuckerberg from Cobank he's here to talk about what's going on in the, uh, in the overall market. And Ken, so I don't go completely crazy on what it is you do at, at uh, CoBank, you handle farm supply stuff and um, kind of looking at input costs and those kind of things uh, on a micro and macro level, correct? No, you're correct, Casey. It's, uh, uh, we call it farm supply.
4: Uh, I also focus on biofuel and then that broad category of innovation, which as you know, uh, ag has been innovating for what Ten thousand years, so yeah. you know right. you think about the uh, you think about the innovation coming into the equipment piece, and it's uh,
1: uh, yeah, it's a fun area to work on, and a lot of exciting developments in it. Right on. Okay. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation with Ken. I've been looking forward to it. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of moving parts right now. Um, let's let's start with with innovation here, and let's talk about that a little bit. So we've had a little bit of an issue with banking here over the last four or five months. A lot of different things have happened that were some big drivers in uh, investment capital-type banking that kind of, you know, with the Silicon Valley Bank issue and I uh, can't forget the other one in, in New York. I can't remember what it was called. But, um, yeah, Signature signature Bank right around the neighborhood for me, yeah. Yeah, so you start looking at what happened with those banks and, and kind of what their niche marketplace was. Um, you know, looking at that, how that affected what you see happening in some of these um, kind of Silicon Valley upstart, venture capital, robotic-type uh, companies that are always, you know, hungry for capital when you're looking on the ag sector. So it's it's um, it's a very interesting
4: question, uh, Casey, and it it's an even more fascinating uh, question to ask. Where do we go from here? So maybe a little bit of a backdrop. Right, we've had uh, a lot of money that's gone into ag tech since uh, the old Monsanto wrote a check for just under a billion to buy that Climate Corp, which itself was a startup. So we've had, you know, call it uh, a decade of multi-billion dollar investments across agri-food technology, a lot in food, a lot in ag, a lot in robotics. And, and I don't have to tell you or your listeners, um, you know, the digitalization of agriculture has been talked about for years, but precision ag is not exactly a new thing. I mean, we've right. had iterations of it, but I think the the area to, to explore with you is that um, as interest rates were uh, going up, and as um, you know, we've had uh, a greater uh, need to to show profitability in some of the newer startup companies. There was a, a resistance, candidly, by those investors putting money into the venture capital to you know to see some exits and returns. And the irony about venture capital is that if you raise money in a fund at a higher, uh, if you if you raise money for a given portfolio investment at a higher level, it looks good, right? You have a readjustment on the post-money value, but if you're not exiting and you're not, and that's uh, not cash flowing, um, ultimately the value comes home to roost. And when interest rates go up, you essentially have a higher discount rate, which equates to a lower net present value. So unless you're doing something incredibly incremental, by definition, the net present cash flows are going to be, the net present value of those cash flows are going to be lower. Therefore, there's a valuation sort of uh, ratcheting down. And I think we also, um, in ag tech, had a little bit of a perfect storm because you have had some uh, companies bleed their way into the public market by way of SPAC, but you haven't had that natural Situation as perhaps we saw in the 90s and the 2000s, where for other industries, you have seed go to venture, venture go to private equity, private equity go to IPO. That sort of didn't happen. You've had a lot of strategic purchases and then you've had a couple SPACs, but you haven't had that, that natural movement. So I think where we are today, I would say that it probably, you know, just Le- probably less to do specifically, let's say, with the issues that we saw at the uh, Signature and the and the uh, um, the uh, First Republic, but more the fact that the nature of venture capital investing has gotten a little more tricky with higher interest rates.
1: Yep, yep. So that, okay, so that kind of leads into our next question is now, you see this higher interest rate environment where we're at, where um, – like you just talked about, it's a lot easier to take a big risk at two percent interest than it is at seven and a half or eight percent interest. You know, the big difference there in, in what your total outcome looks like and what your total cash flows and those kind of things look like when you're dealing with a, a more increased value, and especially when you're starting talking about hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that are getting tossed around in these these various deals that you're looking at. Do you foresee anything that you were looking at that, that? I mean, obviously the feds had some conversations about, uh, we're, we're going to take a break here. Maybe, I mean, they've kind of loosely tossed that around, but not necessarily said we're going to do it, but they've kind of talked about it a little bit, but they've also said that, you know, if we do stop raising rates, we're not going to lower rates. We're just going to keep them the same for an extended amount of time. Um, right. I guess, so looking at the situation that we're in right now and what you just talked about your long-term aspects of kind of what you see happening with that, how do you think that plays into this overall spectrum?
4: Certainly. So I'm a big fan of uh, uh, when, you know, things change. Once the adjustment happens and the market clears, it's usually a good environment. So what we've been talking about with customers for quite a while, and this is where, uh, Casey, my background in investment management probably uh, comes to bear a little Uh, uh, differently than, you know, your average ag economist, Um, you know, the world had been very low interest rates for quite some time. And when you think about portfolio management theory, or saying it simply, retirement assets, the idea of putting 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, when the bonds are earning, you know, nothing or very low percent, you are taking a lot of equity risk. So now that we're moving up to 5%, And by the way, 5% with maybe, you know, a prime, you know, heading towards eight, this is getting back to normal for those of us above 40 that, you know, can look back 20 years and say, yeah, I remember this. So what I would first say is this feels uncomfortable to people that were leveraged, that were borrowing money at very low rates and, you know, sort of... uh, uh, thrown a few Hail Marys out there, but where we are today is the market and the financial system will be better off with a more balanced interest rate uh, environment. And um, you know, our view is that the equity risk premium will be more reasonable relative to rates. Now that that's sort of a textbook. What do I think? So I think that you're right, the Fed, um, uh, the Fed has moved aggressively. Um, I think most of us would uh, uh, believe and suggest, even if it's hindsight bias, that they were late to the party, but they haven't stopped. Um, I think where we're moving up now, I personally think a pause is, is likely here at the um, you know at the June meeting. Um, interest rates uh, uh, <coughs> staying at that level will mean you know moving towards equilibrium. Now, the issue, too, weighing on, uh, uh, you know, money going into, let's say, ag tech is, even though agriculture tends to be uh, less correlated with the broad economy, if there's worries about a recession, people pull their purse strings with respect to investments in areas that are risky. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to play it straight with you. Venture capital is one of the riskiest parts of the capital structure, hard stop, right? It just is. So, if you have recession fears coming, uh, you know that also weighs in. The good news, though, and I'm sort of a bad news uh, first, good news guy. Uh, second, Casey, the good right. news is yeah. that you know it's Godfather one. Um, the good news is that that as markets reach equilibrium and markets start clearing and readjusting, then you have an interesting environment where people that are flush with cash, whether it be high net worth family office or those managers of uh, that are managing venture capital that that you know have been waiting for opportunities i think they come i think they're here now and um you know sometimes in venture especially with uh let's say silicon valley bank moving out of the market you mentioned them before um silicon valley out means that there is some structured credit um transactions that some of the venture capital players can do at very attractive rates. So, you know, when you have lemons, you make lemonade. I know this period is a little bit annoying to some, but I think those folks that uh, are very prudent managers of capital, they're going to find opportunities and uh, they'll either put the balance of capital to work that they have, um, or, you know, they'll go out with a stronger story to raise capital in late 2023, 24. So that's kind of how I'm looking at the space.
1: Okay. All right. So let's jump over here to talk a little bit about, say on the automation side or the uh, innovation side and talk a little bit about automation. Um, so I, this is something I've been thinking about in my head and, and, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room here, so forgive me. But I guess when, you, when I'm looking at automation, I think automation does two things. I think one, obviously it takes care of the um, farm labor issue that we see out there. Obviously it takes care of that. If you have machines driving themselves or you fill in some gaps there with labor that you may or may not have. Secondly, is that it? It really kind of levels the playing field because I think some folks, when they're looking at their growth opportunities, if they don't have the labor or the next generation or whatever it might be coming back in, there's a lot of resistance and hesitancy to go out and try to expand because it's just it's hard enough to do what we're doing now, and you want to go add, you know, twenty five percent more, fifty percent more, whatever to it, you start running into that problem. When you look at automation and you look at how farming is starting to to move into different things and especially crops and the way cattle are raised and all these different things come into play um when you start looking at that have you given any thought to the fact that once the labor issue is no longer really at play anymore it's just really comes down to access to capital is going to allow farms to grow um at whatever pace they they can afford to grow to is that you think that's a something that's on the horizon there
4: yeah, there's a lot uh, lot of different layers to the onion. Casey, let me do my best to unpack it and then uh, remind me of anything I forget to talk about. So uh, first, the fundamental or my uh, uh, sort of framework is that um, agriculture and food broadly are like the last multi-trillion dollar industries that have yet to fully automate, right? So when we start with the thesis of, you know, what's going on and why do we care? That's where I would, you know, start. Um, with robotics and machinery and mechanization, um, I think it's also very, very important for us to discuss that when you think about those step function changes in ag productivity, right? Um, you know, the seed drill by Jethro Tull the non-Rocker, you know, a few right. years ago, back in the 1800s, right, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, that was a game changer, the combine harvester, um, you know, moving away from uh, horses, uh, pulling plows into uh, self, you know, driving and then self-driving and, you know, all the wonderful uh, things that Deer and Case and Holland and Agco and all their associated brands, Kubota, um, uh, you know, many different high quality companies, right, right with, with different automated features. That obviously is. A, there's a business case to doing that and continuing. So when I think about um, what you're talking about, let's just um, make an assumption that some of the robotic and and autonomous tools will replace labor, but others may actually require labor, but different types of skilled labor. Um, think about a, a drone for a minute, where you need a pilot, you need somebody that actually has has. Um, higher value added skills and technical skills. So, the way I think about it is, I think robotics and automation helps. I don't think it's the silver bullet, but let's just say it will help and then get down to the dollar and cents. So, I think you're right. The, the companies that can justify whether their boardroom consists of mom and dad or a professional management team and a public uh, or a public style board of directors if you're going to spend a dollar, a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, right, you have to justify what is that return on investment. So I think the criteria is access to capital, but I think it's also um, expertise and access to that expertise so that you can really make a qualified prediction as to if we buy this in our operation and we restructure that knowing that some of the labor will be taken care of, but others won't, then I think, yeah, there's no question access to capital is is key. I think size is key. So when I think about this, I don't necessarily think the average small farm is necessarily well positioned. In fact, I'd argue the opposite. I think the trends are going towards more, um, you know, higher uh, volume, more land, even diversified. Sort of enterprises, and I think about some of the smartest people uh, around that I've met. That you know, yes, they have a big operation in the U.S., but they also have investments in Brazil because they see you know sort of that geographic uh, diversification as well. So I'm I'm in the camp, Casey, that I think it's not just the access to capital, but being large enough to have the access to capital, to have a CFO, to have a chief risk officer, and and having you know accounting expertise and and candidly, civilian data scientists on, on premise, because I don't think you're going to operate without that. I'll just make one other point to you, which I, I think you you might find interesting. Uh, we're close to publishing a report just laying out what's going on with cooperatives and their cost for property insurance. As you know, the past couple of years have been bonkers with weather and climate related disasters escalating. And the costs of insurance, and I'm not talking about the crop, federal crop insurance, I'm talking about insuring elevators, insuring equipment, insuring our house, insuring our car, all those things, the, the property and the uh, 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 you know facility type insurance, that's escalating and it's going to continue to go up. So if I think simply, how do you win in a commodity business? Well, you got to be a low cost operator. How do you justify spending millions upon millions in insurance premium? Well, you have to have a bigger base of of business. So I think that's an interesting dynamic for both you and I to watch as the years go on, because I really feel like we're going to see a continued trend of, from a producer standpoint, larger, more sophisticated farmers that are going to be asking the equipment companies and the dealers those tough questions about what you can do for me. Um, you know, why it might make sense for me to buy this piece of equipment or why I should rent it from you or even contract and have you, you know, figure out what the uh, technology does and come back to me with a proposal. So that's kind of how I see the business heading. Yep.
1: No, I think I, on the business side, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the complexity uh, of these farming operations as they grow are are getting more and more um, finite. I'm waiting for the day when you when you run across the guy who's got um, in his operation in the family operation, where they've got you know a couple sons and a couple daughters or something like that, some sort of mix, and you know you're going to go be a lawyer, you're going to go be a, a learn how to be oh, a friend, right, yeah. or, you know you, you everyone when you come back to the farm, these are the jobs you're going to have, you know, and, and it's going to be a very just like you put a professionally managed feel to it, not just the the the, the mom and dad boardroom like example like you
4: put in there. Yeah. And listen, we've, uh, you know, I spent a few years at Rabobank and Rabobank has a great franchise with um, uh, the American farmer as part of the farm credit system. CoBank doesn't lend directly in, but we lend to associations that also have, you know, arguably a phenomenal uh, farmer facing franchise. Um, You know, I think that, uh, uh, first of all, uh, celebrating what got us here is you have to start there, right? The moms and dads that uh, that farm that have six or seven or eight generations—not um, for nothing—but I think there is as astute in risk management as some of the people i worked with on Wall Street, right? They understand risk and they understand—they also understand um, uh, nonsense, which I <laughs> really respect. But the idea of where it goes from here, um, you know, there's a interesting dynamic that a number of farm kids and farm families have told me about, there might be a a son or daughter on the farm. And then, as you said, you know, somebody's a stockbroker in New York and a lawyer in California and a a physician in Chicago. And, you know, those folks still have ownership, but the people on the farm are actually running it. You know, it begs for, uh, if you will, a little bit of a different approach to helping that succession planning or, or, you know, thinking about, what the money is that you uh, need to spend to to you know be competitive, and again, not for nothing. I think that um, you know on the on the issue of global warming and climate change, I'm pretty straightforward on this. Uh, I don't like to argue about it because, in my opinion, the climate has changed. Right, we're we're seeing that, and we're seeing the weather patterns really very volatile. So I think that if you're not thinking about that issue and what that issue means to Supply chains, getting stuff, you know, being able to ship grain out, getting fertilizer in. You know, you have to take uh, really a financial, a scientific, and then also a, you know, uh, a hardworking, you know, how do we operate type thought process to how, how you run your business. So I would say that it's challenging, but I think there's opportunities for, you know, next generation
1: farmers to step it up. Sure, absolutely. And I think this is one of those times where you've talked about, um, just like you talked about here about the risk management side of it, the game's changing so much and and what how things are plugging along, especially when it comes to technology and how technology is either going to um I've said it a couple of times on my podcast here where, you know, I, I think this is the time and place where technology is going to Start picking winners and losers a little bit. I think um, your availability to start looking at stuff like we'll use John Deere Scene Spray for example. When you get to whatever Generation Four Scene Spray looks like, you know, and you know, compared to what it is today, if you're using the, the the latest and greatest levels of technology now, where you're really dialing in your input costs and really dialing in uh, how much chemical and fertilizer and those kind of things that you're putting down, comparatively to what Gen One looks like your economy is a skill. Drake just changed dramatically, you know, and, and how you're able to organically farm money and back into out of the operation just through efficiencies and savings. That this is one of those first times where I think technology is not going to be the same technology available to everybody based on seed technology or fertilizer technology or equipment technology. I, I,
4: I think you're right. And, you know, when, when we think about, um, Uh, what it takes to bring folk back to rural America, there's an underlying story here that's pretty cool, which is if you have that grounding in how the agribusiness works, regardless of if it's crop or dairy or livestock, um, and you have an engineering degree because, you know, mom and dad worked hard to get you there and you wanted to to go, um, you can come back with an entirely different sort of perspective on, um, you know, how to go about investing in the business sure. um, you know I have uh, I'm friends with the guys at Aimpoint that have uh, a body of work that they've done about the farmer the future I'm right. sure you've heard some of it
1: I've, Yeah they've been on here a couple of times and Yeah
4: no they're eight, they're eight they're good yeah. friends I have a lot of respect for them and and we together have a lot of respect for the American farmer and what I would say is what's amazing is the U.S. farmer really is the rural entrepreneur, right? And I think that you have more bright women and men that are, you know, thinking a bit differently and growing. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Brett Scotto talks about, um, the founder of Aimpoint is, you know, that need for collaboration and that need for sort of rethinking, you know, what your business is. So, where I sit, you know, I work with and Cobank lends to and we advise many of the largest and medium and small co-ops in America. So I'm always trying to make sure that they understand that the customer's needs are changing. Mm-hmm. And if the customer is demanding something that is reasonable and you're not delivering it, then you have to be prepared to lose that relationship. And that's not something that we want them to lose because they're fortunes are tied to you know that that farm
1: yep that's for sure that is for sure all right let's talk about input costs here a little bit kind of shift gears a minute so you're looking at input costs where they are right now so you've got all kinds of stuff going on and kind of just blend this into some geopolitical stuff too but you look at all the stuff we have going on right now when you start looking at oil and you start looking at what russia's doing and they're they're selling oil you know Allegedly selling oil, um, (laughs) selling oil at at a discounted price. They're doing the same thing with wheat, they're doing a lot of different stuff out there right now because they're so they're sanctioned and there's all kinds of things going on there. Um, you start looking at what China's doing and some of the uh opening of what they're doing, so you start looking at input costs and how those start playing into those bigger geopolitical things. Um, I guess the first question I'd ask you looking at energy right now, um, we saw. Over $10 natural gas, almost less than a year ago. And I think right now natural gas is trading less than it started at before it shot up $10. I guess looking at overall energy sector right now and just from a very macro level here, um, what are your thoughts there and how do you see that influencing what we see in input costs moving forward into twenty four?
4: Yeah. So when I look at the energy space, and obviously i have been watching natural gas go down uh, and fertilizer go down, right? Uh, uh, given the the uh, you know natural gas as a feedstock, and also natural gas being an operational input for you know production of lots of things beyond fertilizer. Um, diesel prices are down, et cetera. So the way I look at it is, it seems to me that um, any market um, uh, trades on its least common denominator. So the stock market, um, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody, but the stock market dumbs it down to the least common denominator that it can feel has some certainty, right? And then millions of professionals are trying to interpret minute to minute moves in different tea leaves, et cetera. But the reality is sometimes it's the simple things. So if I think about energy and grain markets today, I would say that. We had a lot of geopolitical tension. We have tight stocks that are just this tight, maybe even tighter, um, you know, since Ukraine is still fighting a war. Um, But the market has gotten used to that. Right. And with respect to energy, I think what uh, the broader market might be telling us is, yes, U.S. GDP growth. And we'll get a a reading, a second reading on U.S. growth this week. Um, that's obviously much lower in the first quarter than it was and what it was last year. China's growth seems to be sputtering a little bit. Um, you know, we still have lingering concerns about high inflation. So I think what the energy market seems to be telegraphing right now is, well, if you have a recession, there's going to be less demand and prices are down. Now, are they at the bottom? I have no idea. Could they be? Sure. What do I think specifically about natural gas and fertilizer going out two years? I think that's uh, um, a case of what you're challenging me on. There, I, I think that we have a gift in time here with these cheap resources. Let me tell you why. So with respect to natural gas, so if you assume that um, Russia and Ukraine, that conflict is going to go on for a while, and by the way, the real war has been going on since they invaded Crimea. So, you know, it's not really a one-year-and-change war. It's, what, since 2014. Um, Russia played its hand on what they playing hardball with Europe. And, you know, once someone takes out the knife, you never forget it, right? right? So I think the U.S. of A. is going to continue to export natural gas to our allies in Europe, A, because there's a demand. B, it's good for everyone's, you know, economy and safety. And then beyond that, we sort of have to, we're not going to leave them in the lurch, right? Mm -hmm. So what's fascinating is that that uh, feedstock or natural gas will compete with, you know, normal industrial production, fertilizer production, and now export demand. So if I look at the futures market and I checked out that nat gas a little while ago, the forward prices were higher than where they are today. And I kind of feel that same way with fertilizer because um, you know, you're still gonna have that demand unless we regulate away fertilizer. There's no question in my mind, you're gonna have demand come back and a number of the public companies have spoken about it. So um, I look at a few years and I say, I'm not sure what the level of equilibrium is, but it feels to me like it's probably a bit higher um, than where we are today. Now, what does that mean for uh, grain prices? Wow, grain prices have taken it down, right? I I do a Monday morning briefing, Casey, which looks at commodity prices. What happened last week in the five days last week, and what's happened year to date? And um, you know, grain prices have uh, have have been down anywhere from nine to you know 25, 30 percent, depending on the contract and the and the uh, commodity. Um, sugar has risen. Everything <laughs> else has seemed to be you know, under pressure. So, you know, we have pressure on the complex there. And I think the irony about that is that, you know, at some point, if corn is sub five, and the universities are talking about break even at 480, you know, something's got to give. So I feel and if you look at the John Deere stock price chart, Deere had a great quarter with 53% growth in in large equipment right 30 percent overall sales growth at least on a reported basis um the stock is trending down though so it's almost telegraphing that there's a need for a uh, re-rate at some point but it's a bit challenging bottom line input prices are you know reasonable now i think as the farmer you have to be conscious of buying low as a co-op you got to be conscious of buying low and selling higher and maybe as an equipment company and a dealer, which is in the area that you uh, spend a lot of time, I think you have to, uh, you know, make the equipment and the value proposition compelling so that people can afford to either buy it or lease it at these higher rates. So that's sort of how I think about uh, just input costs in general.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk on the on the, on the geopolitical side, kind of looking at, at the grain stuff that we see happening. So... Russia renewed the Grain Corridor uh, Black Sea agreement for another two months. Um, yep. Everything that I've read so far about this, it really sounds like that the Turkish president, Erdogan, uh, is kind of the glue holding that thing together. Sounds like to me, um, you know, he has a very uphill battle uh, to get reelected here, consider where he's at. Um, and if he's not reelected, it sounds like this Grain Corridor deal is kind of a, a thing in the past. Now, Ukraine's made a couple statements that hey, you guys don't want to do that, that's great. We've got other ways to get our stuff out. We don't need to do that. Um that being said, when you look at the, the grain corridor situation, and you look at, you know, Ukraine's gonna be somewhere around 25% of what they produced two years ago, which is half of half, basically. And when you're looking at that, and then you look at where Russia needs to get their grain out that they're selling to the world, allegedly um, all over the place, you know, that black sea is a, is a key point in all of that. So a lot of people are making it out to be like, it's not that big of a deal, but I I don't see it that way. I see it as a major deal. And if tomorrow the the black sea corridor is off the table and Russia goes and sinks a ship coming in there to some Ukrainian port, all of a sudden price of wheat's $22. So, I mean, I guess what's, what's your thought there? Yeah. So my thought
4: is that um, it makes a lot of sense, right, to be thinking about uh, Turkey and the election and the uh, leadership there as being, uh, you know, maybe pivotable, uh, pivot uh, the pivot point or the 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 flex point or the danger point. Maybe that's another way to put it. Um, I I sort of take a, a different view, and uh, I'm a bit of a contrarian by nature, Casey. But I also like to. Think about each day, what am I not thinking about that might be going on? So, you know, that little country called China, which has uh, more influence than, you know, people have ever realized, and they continue to be a very shrewd operator on a lot of scales. I think they they are probably uh, more or less going to be the governor in this situation because they know that you get to a point where they're gonna be cutting their nose despite their face, right? It's, it's not gonna be good. So I have a feeling regardless of what, you know, happens with the Turkish elections, um, I think China is going to be, you know, very vocal about trying to move towards um, keeping that open and, you know, some level of, um, you know, some level of stability uh, in the region. So uh, somebody asked me, you know recently, what do I really think is going on? And I think about that game, that board game, what strategy? When we were kids, you had you know map, you had the map, you had the, the weapons and the power and the money all over you know the world. Well, clearly, if you think about the relative competitive advantages that some of our countries have, right? So you know, the Middle East has always had the, energy russia has resources many of them china has manufacturing um competitive advantage uh u.s has lots of different uh cost of capital triple a rating um uh you know uh the the world's reserve currency these are all all our advantages um so why is russia going into ukraine well they want to control more food because if you control the food supply you control the people you know that famous. Um, Uh, Quote by, I think, Lenin, uh, which is every uh, society is three meals away from chaos. I mean, you know, it might be only two meals in, in, you know, Russia and that area. So they are attempting to get grain. Now, if they do that and they hurt China's uh, economy because the rest of the world starts doing other things other than China, then we're going to have another little conflict on our hand. It's called (laughs) China-Russia. So I think in the scheme of things, um, and I'm a guy that believes in the efficient market theory, if the bigger gun is going to be harmed by that uh, deal falling apart, China is going to act in their interest to make sure. So um, I actually think Turkey may be less of a swing factor for some of these reasons. And you're,
1: you know, of course, welcome to push back or tell me I'm crazy. It's not the first time I've heard that. Um that's the first time I've heard that that scenario and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because the last thing China needs to have happen is higher fuel costs and higher food costs based around what you know, the number of people they have and and the situation, especially when they're trying to ramp their economy back up and the amount of inputs, food, energy, all those things that are becoming back into the marketplace. They don't need expensive oil and high dollar wheat and rice and all that other stuff to come into play there too. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, Xi Jinping, uh, President Xi Jinping does have a lot of influence, whether Putin Putin likes it or not. He does have a lot of influence over what Russia does. And that you've seen that kind of play out for a little bit from time to time in some of the discussions that you see between the two. Yeah. And
4: uh, Xi Jinping doesn't need someone to taste this food every day, does he? You know, so yeah. it's uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, kind of a little bit of a different yeah. comfort level uh, there. Yep. By the way, can you imagine being that guy or that gal in that job every day?
1: Oh man, I tell you what, that must be so exhausting. That, yeah. yeah, that would that would suck the life right out of you pretty quick. I think pretty quick. Well, you know what? I think we've hit the things I wanted to talk about. Ken, is there anything that you think that's out there that that is uh, people should be paying attention to based around what you're what you're reporting out there?
4: Well, I think that, um, you know, the issue with rising insurance costs and rising interest, uh, higher interest costs coming back in and and still the labor situation, um, you know, I think we have to be very, very careful about recognizing that after literally three very, very good years in, in U.S. crop farming, this is a business that tends to have a couple of good years and a number of down years. So, um, you know, I'm trying to think through, how co-ops can manage through what appears to be, you know, sort of uh, being on the other side of the cycle. I'll I'll circle it, though, back to um, where we started the conversation, which, um, you know, technology is a tool. And there are some really, really interesting tools available to, you know, see uh, uh, the U.S. farmer um, and the U.S. agribusiness system, you know, adopt more, so even though nobody wants to spend money now, I think the right business strategy is investing now for the future so that you can level out some of the volatility that's in this business. And if you have an ability to um, you know, manage risk better than you're doing today, um, I mean, that's going to be pivotal. You know when you, when you think about managing risk, you can think about the investment business or you can think about golf, right? right. The fewer the mistakes, the better the score period. So that's kind of how uh, sort of another line of thinking about, you know, where we go from,
1: uh, from this point forward. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. If folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing, what's the best way to do that? So you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, uh, LinkedIn will be around
4: longer. So use that one. Um, You could uh, also please go to www.cobank.com uh, then choose knowledge exchange, and knowledge exchange is where myself and Tanner and the rest of the research team will all buffer, uh, you know, our commentary probably five, six times a year on various subjects. Um, it's free. I'm not a give it away type of free guy, but we do, and we make it available to the um, you know farm credit system and literally to anybody that takes the time to go onto our website So do that because I think. There's two things you'll get out of it. First, a broad perspective of, of coverage. And second, you know, when folks in the industry read our work, uh, they often, you know, send thoughts back to us. And to me, that helps me do a better job analyzing the tea leaves. So um, you know, please go to cobank.com and and uh yeah, take a look around.
1: And on LinkedIn and Twitter, you're at Ken Zuckerberg. Is that is that it? Uh, correct. Yep. Right on. Okay. Well, like I said, I appreciate you being on. I look forward to maybe another conversation sometime. Great to visit with you today, Casey. Thank you. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. And check out the video version of this over on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to www.movingironllc.com for everything Moving Iron related and all the information for the Moving Iron Summit coming up in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th. Uh, good networking opportunity there. And we'll have some good speakers as well. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Ken Zuckerberg. Let's move some iron folks out. Exxon started out of a passion for keeping